0: Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from Valencia, this is The Breakfast Show with Mal Krishnasami.
1: Good. Good morning. It's seven a.m. in the UK. Welcome to the Breakfast Show. I'm Mal- Malavili Krishnasamy. I'm here every Tuesday, seven to eight thirty a.m. Coming up, we've got Elham Farhad to talk about migrant leaders. We'll be discussing what the charity involves and her background too.
0: Live from Valencia. This is The Breakfast Show with Mal Krishnasamy on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Morning, morning, morning.
2: phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the program for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The program offers complete support for your phonics teaching alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications, and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
3: last week's warning from Ofsted's Chief inspector, missing from school, England's Children's Commissioner Rachel D'Souza has announced that an investigation to locate the ghost children is to be lodged. Some estimates have suggested that as many as a hundred thousand children are at risk of abuse after failing to return to school after lockdown. Rachel D'Souza said we're hearing lots about ghost children, and I hate that term. These are real flesh and blood children. We should be able to find out where every child in England is. We should be making sure they are in school, receiving high quality education. The Education Secretary, Nadim Zahawi, said his department had now set up a new attendance alliance, designed to bring together the key figures able to tackle the problem of missing school children. Following Nicola Sturgeon's announcement on Friday that the Scottish Government would do all that it can to keep classrooms open, the Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, has stated that schools in Scotland will be the last thing we close. These announcements come in response to a rapid increase in cases of the new strain of COVID and a call from teaching union boss Larry Flanagan to close schools early for Christmas. He said the Scottish government should consider an early Christmas closure if a fire break is needed to fend off a new wave. Nicola Sturgeon said last week that she would bust a gut to keep schools open as normal. Butterflies Nursery in Craigie, Dundee, usually organises food bank donations around Christmas, but this year they have raised the bar and have launched a winter jacket drive. Manager Caroline McDermott said, It just came from us thinking, what else can we do to help? A lot of people have lost their jobs with the pandemic recently. And the last thing a lot of people think of when they're doing their budget is a warm winter coat. We printed off some laminated signs and made some flyers. So far, it's been quite successful. Everyone deserves a winter coat. So far, more than 50 coats have been donated by pupils, parents and staff. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This week we're going to look at one of the simplest,
4: freely available yet least used browser technologies, the ReaderView. Chrome versus Edge, let the battle commence. On screen one, I have Microsoft Edge, weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. On screen two, I have Google Chrome, also weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. Round one, opening reader view. On the Edge browser, the immersive reader feature is built in and can be activated by a button on the address bar by typing read followed by a colon in front of a URL and also you can simply press F9. Before you can open reader view in Chrome, you have to install it as an extension. It's free and not difficult. Once installed, you'll find it in extensions located to the right of the address bar. One point to Immersive Reader. Round two, Features. Both come out fighting with the Read Aloud feature that allows the user to adjust the read speed, skip forward and back, and change the voice that is reading. They both also highlight the word being read. Chrome Reader has a volume control, which is a nice touch if not using headphones. One point, Chrome Reader. Ability. A big feature for reader views is the ability to change the formatting to suit the user. Both allow easy changing of font size, font and text width on the screen. But they differ in background colour features. Here is where Immersive Reader offers quite a bit more. Chrome Reader offers 8 background slash contrast colours, 4 light and 4 dark. Immersive Reader provides 23 background options, green, pink, yellow and blue included, allowing pupils with visual needs to find a comfortable colour. One point, Immersive Reader, round four, editing. Chrome Reader features a design mode. This allows you to highlight text and make changes, quite useful if wanting to pick out key points to return to. Immersive Reader does not have this feature. One Point Chrome Reader, round five, extra features. Immersive Reader has a grammar feature, allowing words to be split into syllables. You can highlight nouns, verbs, adjectives, and adverbs by flicking switches. This feature is not offered on Chrome Reader. One Point Immersive Reader. Immersive Reader also offers reading preferences, featuring line focus of five, three, or one line, blocking out the rest of the page, There's a picture dictionary allowing some words to change the pointer to a magic wand that reveals a picture depicting it. Also, there's a translation feature allowing partial or full translation of a page into 88 different languages at the click of a button. Chrome Reader does not offer these features, however, other free products such as Google Translate could be used. Immersive Reader takes the point because you don't need to leave the page. FINAL Final SCORE Winning with 4 points to 2 after a blistering final round is Microsoft Immersive Reader, but let's face it, most people don't know these things exist. If you were one of them, please do something about it. See if these features are installed in your school, and if not, request they are. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed.
0: Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back. That I absolutely loved that Two Minute Tech It's really interesting. Um, Yeah, absolutely loved it. Right, so today's show is all about migration, uh, immigration. And um, yeah, now I've become a migrant. It's quite interesting, really, um, when we look at what is the definition of migration. Because it seems to have been conflated on... The newspapers um, they seem to use asylum seekers and migrants all in the same you know as though they're interchangeable as though they're all the same words and um, they're really not. My parents were migrants my dad um, my dad used to work at the uh, British naval base in Singapore. I think he was a, a, like a, a lorry driver or something like that. But when the British um, closed down the naval base, they were handing out passports. And I remember years ago observing a, a sociology lesson where they were talking about migration and um, quite highly rate sociology as a, as a subject, actually, um, because they were talking about migration and how... And I saw this video... Where it was there was this song just asking for hands. We need hands. Um, and that's exactly it, that the British needed workers. So they asked my dad, would you like to come? to Britain. And my dad saw it as, oh, great, going to the motherland. Um, and that's how he saw it. He, he felt like he had two motherlands. He had Britain and he had India. Uh, he'd been to neither, <laughs> but he saw them as his motherland. Um, so they were handing out passports and my dad and his younger brother uh, came over to England and they landed in London my dad landed in West Ham and my uncle landed in Southall in so two ends of London um my uncle ended up working at Heathrow and my dad found different factory jobs and um a year later brought over my mum and my brother and two sisters over who were who had been in Singapore all that time so I'm expecting Elham to give us oh no she's already called me and I've missed it Ah, okay let me call her now Elham let me uh tell you about Elham to begin with hello good morning
5: Good morning Mal.
1: how are you? Yeah I'm fine, now Nathan is in the studio I don't know if you can indicate, if you can hear Elham Let me turn this right up Right, okay, I keep bashing my microphone as well So welcome <laughs> to the show Elham Oh loud and clear, thank you Nathan um, Okay, so Thank you Tell us about thank you Thank you so much Yeah, let me just uh, give a little uh, blurb about you Um you grew up as a young migrant in the UK um, and it says here that you camped outside Birmingham City Council offices for three days to get funding as a home student to go to university. That but Was that in winter? I mean, that sounds rough. It
5: wasn't. It wasn't as rough as it sounds. Um, but basically, what it was is um, we moved uh, as a family uh, from Iran to the UK to Birmingham
1: mm-hmm. when
5: I was thirteen, year, 13 years old, uh, and I went to three different state schools in three years. Uh, but luckily, uh, my GCSEs and education results were quite good, really good, and. Um, and unfortunately, though, my family broke up and we ended up experiencing some of the typical challenges that in terms of um, lack of resources, family breakup, lack of know how, connections, and so on. But I knew one thing that. The way I would get myself out of this situation was through education. So I really knew that I had to go to university. Uh, but I discovered that because I had been in the UK only a couple of years, um, I would be counted as an international student. And in my financial circumstances, there was no way I could afford mm. the high high fees, even if I worked 24 seven. So um, I thought that's it. I've got to find a way of being counted as a home student so I get a grant. And uh, so, so I stood outside Birmingham City Council offices for three days in a row, until I got to meet somebody who was able to help. Mm. And they did. And oh, wow. I will forever be, I will forever be grateful for that, and and uh, I will forever feel like a brummie <laughs>
2: for, for
5: for their kindness uh, and the welcome that I had from Birmingham and uh, all over the country.
1: Mm. Well, so how did they help?
5: And um, simply by um, counting me as a home student, which mm. meant that I got a I got a grant to go to university, um, and I ended up. Doing my degree in finance and accounting, and a few years later, when I was twenty-five, having qualified as a chartered accountant, I got my first big break as a financial controller in the company GE. And mm. um, so, so the rest was history. Um, but now, when I look at education today, I think there are a couple of issues. And um, one is that the situation with funding uh, university and higher education has got even worse compared mm. to when I was young. It's now uh, very difficult for students with the student fees. But I think the even more important issue um, is that is that it, we have to question, are there quality jobs available for graduates when they finish their university studies? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would like, the message I'd like to give is that young people should always think that a big part of education is about employment and career progression. They've got to ask themselves, what's the purpose of this education, at least in my view?
1: Yeah, yeah. And what do you feel, um, because I, I mean, I, I was one of the, uh, probably the last few general in law Never have gone to university uh, and I wouldn't have considered going to university because it wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been practical and the idea of being in debt that just in my family it would be like no you don't do that <laughs> you, don't, you don't end up in debt so um, what made you set up this charity?
5: Um, honestly what happened was I kind of went away from all that for 20 years. Mm. I carried on in GE uh, throughout my 20s, was on their advanced financial leadership program, became a finance director, um, spent really just over 20 years as a finance director in GE, News Corp and EY. And I, if I'm honest, uh, I think I forgot about those challenges that i faced. I thought, okay, I've done some of the things I need to, I've succeeded in my career, I'm a good person because I mentor a few ethnic minorities in EY, um, and I've kind of forgot. And then I read a report, the Parker Review in 2017, mm-hmm. which looked at the ethnic diversity of UK boardrooms. and And I looked deeper in the data and put it all on a spreadsheet, looked at the social mobility side as well, and I realized actually the migrant directors in the FTSE 100 were almost all exclusively privately educated. Mm. And I suspected that that applies to many directors, regardless of their ethnicities. And I really felt that that's wrong because having gone to status schools, I, in that moment I realized quite what the odds were against me. Mm. Um, so I thought that's wrong. I, I really didn't realize that, that these challenges still exist to the extent that they exist. And I felt really, really um, um, moved to do something industrial about it. Something mm. big about it, at mm. least in my own, in my with my own abilities. Um, so I launched Migrant Leaders Charity back in 2017, mm. um, and and it's a comprehensive development program for um, young first and second generation migrants who are between 16, and based in the UK, and we have today over 900 senior mentors from 95 FTSE 100 and leading firms. Each of the young people gets matched with a mentor uh, that matches their career aspirations in terms of sector and technical aspirations and development mm. needs. And also through our corporate partnerships with anglo American, Smith and Nephew, Cantor, ABB and others, we develop and provide uh, really high quality work experiences, internships, workshops, training and connections. Uh, it really, really changes the lives of the young people. Yeah. It basically has. It basically has the development ha- program has everything I could have done with at that age. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so your experience has led you to create this charity. And what has been the impact on? So you set it up in twenty seventeen. So it's been four years now. So what what has been the impact?
5: Um, that's the best bit. Um, we hear about the impact on real lives every day. Mentees email me saying that they got that internship, they got that top graduate job. Mm-hmm. Um, to, give you an ex- to give you an example, um, uh, w- one of the engineering students who applied to the programme um, looking at the application just seemed perfect for an internship I was aware of at a top engineering company, ABB, mm. and and he's just got that internship through the recommendation and obviously his own talents and excellent interview. Um, when they then. You know, we, you know, they're all very talented. They have their strengths, but we kind of huddle around them to make sure that whatever else is missing in terms of confidence, interview technique, um, choice of careers, whatever is missing in each of the individual young people, um, we really provide them and we really jump to give them exactly what they need at any point in time Mm. so that they succeed. Um, Another example and I think it's fair to point out that not only we work with first and second generation young migrants but we're quite an inclusive program because we uh, take on applications from all disadvantaged young people in the Mm. UK so that includes white British disadvantaged Mm. uh, and a good example of an outcome uh, for, is, is, is one of our mentees who's in the cases studies in the impact report on our website, migrantleaders.org.uk. Mm. Um, James, for instance, he came from Derby. I really relate to James because I grew up with young people like James. Mm. He uh, came from Derby, left his family, is um, the first to go to university um, and went to London. Um, joined our program um just over three years ago. And I remember just over three years ago, I took him with me to a meeting at the marketing company, Cantor, uh, because I had a feeling that that this could be interesting for him. And when we came out of the meeting, James told me that this would be his dream employer. Mm. Now, three years on, having got the chief marketing officer of Cantor as his mentor, during those three years mm. and having uh, having graduated from university he's just uh, landed uh, six months ago his graduate job at Cantor, and he's loving it yeah. absolutely loving it and thriving
1: yeah. that's incredible that's absolutely incredible um so the so your charity is really changing lives but not just you know a one-off or something like that it's it has a Uh, an impact on the rest of their lives and will have an impact on their kids and so on. So um, what is um, the future of migrant leaders?
5: I think in the medium term, uh, what we've got to do is help the government with the levelling up agenda as best as we can in our own small way. For instance, last week I visited uh, five Liverpool schools. And it's really, really critical that we don't forget the regions in this. Um, And a number of the Liverpool schools, uh, you know, students have been applying to our programme and getting in, and my task really is to make sure that we really pivot their careers. We find each and every one of them, their individual unique talents and strengths. And we have tools and programs and workshops we've developed in order to help them discover that. And then to connect them with the the big local employers such as AstraZeneca, PwC. There is a there is a lot of local industry and employers in across the regions in Britain. And um, really, my job is to develop work experiences, internships, connections, and relationships Mm
1: -hmm. between these
5: young people and the big top local employers. So that when it comes to their job applications, whether straight after school or through degree apprenticeships, or after they graduate or through internships, then they have those relationships and they have a very high chance of landing those top jobs.
1: Mm. Yeah, and would you, I mean, is it totally UK based or is the plan to move across Europe and beyond?
5: Um, To date it's all UK based because Mm. um, I I started where my heart is. I Mm. grew up with, with British people and they welcomed me, I am the product of this country. And you don't forget that in a hurry. Mm. Um, So, so my task really is to to go deep into the communities, continue the roadshow across the UK. I'll keep going to schools, colleges, and universities. Get as much, you know, as much, give as much help as I could with the wonderful migrant leaders team and the volunteer mentors and corporate partners. Mm. As much to do as much as we can in the UK. But it, it is possible that in the future we would go to the US and Europe because if you look at the Western world, there are 30 million first generation young migrants mm. in, the, in the developed world. And I know that most of them are very disconnected and don't have the opportunities they deserve. Mm. And and let's not let's not forget this is good for the local host economies. And um, one of our objectives with Migrant Leaders Charity is actually to grow the British economy, mm. and every everybody benefits when yeah. when young when young people succeed, the whole economy and communities benefit.
1: Yeah. Why is it that the government isn't doing this? I'm
5: sure they are doing a lot as well. It's just that um, everybody has their role, haven't they? Um, Mm. Everybody, whether it's the central government, education department, um, local councils, schools, communities, charities, corporates, I think the question isn't why others aren't doing this. I think Mm. everybody is and should be doing absolutely everything they can in this. You're Mm. absolutely right, Mal. but well, i'm trying to just focus on what i can do yeah. um what ho- however little that is as as one person with a group of supporters um what can we do and i know that the government is doing what uh, they can and of course they should always do more and more
1: mm. yeah absolutely um if you needed i mean in terms of where migrant leaders goes next, what does, you know, how can people get involved if they feel just as passionately as you do? How can people get involved in migrant leaders?
5: I think for your audience, um, more than anything is to connect migrant leaders um, to schools which have uh, a sixth form, uh, schools and colleges which have a sixth form. We start working with young people uh, from, yeah, Uh, 12 onwards. Um, So if you could, you know, anyone who wants to connect us to schools in the UK, they can um, email inquiries at migrantleaders.org.uk. Check out our website, migrantleaders.org.uk and connect us to schools that you might be a governor at, a school at, Uh, And uh, we will then send them information about our program and hopefully start working with them. Uh, I should point out that the program is completely free of charge um, because our charity is primarily funded by our corporate partners.
1: That's amazing. And this is right across the country?
5: It is, across the UK. In fact, our mentees... Today, our mentees come from sixty-one locations across the UK, including including Northern Ireland.
1: Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Is there anything else you'd like to say about um, migrant leaders?
5: Only, only that uh, that we will continue to work hard. We are really blessed that. It's not just me. It's the whole Migrant Leaders team. Mm. It's the mentors. It's the corporate partners. We are so lucky to have all the support that we have. And lo- let's just keep going. Let's keep expanding the charity's impact. Let's keep helping as many young people as we can. And uh, We are in this together. We really are in this together. Mm. And let's make this country as amazing as we know it can be and it deserves to be
1: yeah yeah absolutely thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about it and um i'd love it if you can come back in again and tell us about any events that are happening uh within migrant leaders or if you want to make sure schools are aware in the future of um uh, recruitment and so on so yeah thank you very much
5: Thank you so much, Mel, and thank you for inviting me.
1: No problem. I mean, I think about, um, I mean, I worked in West London in schools where there were around 72% EAL, English as an additional language. Um, and I think that would have made a huge difference. You know, migrant leaders would have made a huge difference to many of those children's lives, many coming over from incredibly difficult backgrounds having witnessed such horrific things Um, and I remember once talking to some kid about his uh, coursework I think it was for citizenship and realizing I'm talking to this kid about his coursework and he's He was a child soldier, um, and he's now in the UK. The fact that he made it to school at all (laughs) is a miracle, let alone me saying that you need to sort out your coursework and hand it in. It just felt so trivial talking to him about it. And just being aware of the backgrounds some children have come from, um, pretty horrific. I do remember many years ago, I was in my... I think I was in my first... Yeah, I was an NQT. Um, And I think that made it worse (laughs) that I was an NQT. And in the school I was working in in Southall, I was asked because they knew that... uh, We were asked to uh, volunteer to... um, translate um if we needed to and i was the only one that spoke tamil and um they said oh we've got this trouble had started happening in sri lanka again and they got this sri lankan kid oh my god he was the cutest child on the planet and he was so dinky for an 11 year old he was tiny and really cute he didn't speak a word of english um basically, his family had put him on a plane um, and hoped for the best. And he landed in uh, Heathrow uh, with nobody to go to. And the authorities uh, found him and he was put, um, uh, I think he became one of those, looked after children in one of those homes. And the EAL lead said to me, we just want to find out a bit about his background. And I was like, I went in completely naive. Uh, Although I speak Tamil, I don't have a Sri Lankan background. My parents are Malaysian, Malaysian Indian. And um, yeah, so I knew about the troubles, but I didn't, it didn't occur to me walking into that meeting what I might hear. And, um, And my Tamil was pretty rusty because I don't, there's nobody I speak to speak in tamil to anymore used to be my parents but not anymore so um went into that meeting and um i've forgotten her name the eal lead said to me right ask him where he's from what's you know and the little boy said to me um that he's from sri lanka and he told me eventually after a bit of you know, after he was very quiet and said a few words here and there. And eventually he warmed to me because, you know, I spoke the language, albeit with a Cockney accent. <laughs> I was always known as the Cockney Tamil because my my Tamil was shocking. Um And so, and it is like when you're speaking to a Sri Lankan, uh, it's like speaking to English to a Glaswegian that you're it, it just like, what? what are they saying i need subtitles so i was struggling a bit to understand what he was saying um but i do remember him saying that um he was playing in the fields with his um with his cousins or something and suddenly there was all this noise like huge noise um from the other side of the field and one end of the field, he saw his mum. And his mum shouted at him to go to his uncle's house. Just go, run. And so him and his cousins went to his uncle's house. Um, and I said to him, where? <laughs> um, I asked him, where's his mum? And his mum's still there. And I was like, what about your dad? And um, he started rocking in his chair and I was trying to stop myself crying because it was obvious that he'd seen something horrific um, and I remember him saying he, he, he basically has not seen his parents since. The last time he saw his mum was when she told him to run from the other side of the field and you just think you know, some of these children that come over, they just go through the most, they've been through the most horrendous things. And then, you know, when you see some teachers yelling at some kid because they haven't got a pen, (laughs) you just think, come on, get a grip. Um, We need to be, okay, we need to be getting them into the English school system, but... I think we need to be aware that the fact that they're there at all is incredible. Um, So I've worked with a huge amount of children. I mean, being in London, it was just normal. And and it's something that people have said to me because I've moved to Spain. I don't know if I've mentioned that, (laughs) but because I've moved to Spain and my children are eight and five. People are like, oh, how are they going to cope in school? And I just think, you know, having a teacher head on, I have known year sevens coming into school with not a word of English. And by year nine, they're um, in the playground giving it what for in English. You know, they, within the year, they're communicating. And I've known year 10s come in with nothing, not a word of English, and have come out of year 11 with uh, six to 10 GCSEs, really good GCSEs, and gone on to A-level and become doctors and uh, all kinds of uh, professions. And so in that sense, I'm not worried about my kids learning the language. They're, I mean, being so much younger, they'll they'll be like sponges. They'll pick it up. Okay, I just wanted to talk about um, the British press and how they talk about migrants. Uh, and I'd said before we spoke to Elham how um, the press tends, the media tends to talk about migrants and asylum seekers as all, all the same thing. And so I've looked at definitions, and it is something that I used to teach when uh, I was a citizenship teacher. And um, citizenship was my second subject, and I, I love teaching it. Uh, it's a shame that it's gone, it seems to have gone down the swanny uh, in the last 10 years, funnily enough, um, which is weird because actually it was during, obviously, the Blair era when I became a teacher, um, citizenship, first came out and I knew during my PGCE that you know history teachers are going to get lumbered with um, how I saw it then lumbered with teaching citizenship um, and so I did I did a whole project on it on my PGCE and uh, decided to look into it and fell in love with the subject because it's basically modern history uh, it's you know you can trace things back and forward from history to citizenship and back again and um one of the uh, major topics we talk about is is immigration good or bad for britain another thing we'd um a major project on would be uh should britain be part of europe or not and <laughs> yeah i mean it's um i think uh that really needs to be talked about more but um obviously hasn't been lately um so the definitions of a migrant so a migrant can be broadly defined as a person who changes their country of usual residence conventionally there are three different ways of making this definition more precise so migrant can be number one someone whose country of birth is different to their country of residence so that's like me i'm i was born in london but now i live in Valencia. number two someone whose nationality is different to their country of residence and number three someone who changes their country of usual residence for a period of at least a year so the country of destination effectively becomes the country of usual residence okay um Now, I can't see anywhere where, I mean, if I think about my parents, they were asked to come here, uh, and where they were, there was no work. And I I just think about my entire family history. If I go back uh, a number of generations, so my great-grandparents were Indian, and um, my family history and British history, history is very entwined so the british needed workers in malaysia to work on the tea plantations and the rubber plantations so they took a load of workers a load of people from india to malaysia and that's how my family on both sides ended up in malaysia my parents were born in malaysia and I remember my mum saying she used to work on the rubber plantations and stuff uh, as a kid. And um, like I said earlier, where my dad was working in the British naval base. And when the British shut it down in 69, 1970, they were handing out passports and um, asked my dad, do you want to go to Britain? And he's like, oh, OK, because there was no work. And he had three kids, so he came over to Britain, and he thought, yeah, this will give my kids a good life, going to the motherland. And um, there's a story I remember him telling us, uh, which has always stuck with me, that my dad, he got himself a job in a factory And um, at the end of the week, I mean, he worked so hard. And at the end of the week, he got his little wage packet in the days when he used to get those little brownies inside it. And um, he looked at it and it was 15 pounds. And we're talking 1970. So 15 pounds. He sat at the side of the road and he cried. He was in bits because he thought, he didn't realize there was an exchange rate. He thought 15 pounds was the same as 15 Singaporean dollars. So he sent 10 pounds to my mom in Singapore and he kept five pounds for himself. And he thought, what have I done? I've come all this way. Um, I'm never gonna be able to get my family over. Uh, th- this is gonna be really, really difficult now. Now my mum got that ten pound, and changed it, and it came to eighty Singaporean dollars. Now eighty Singaporean dollars in nineteen seventy was like ching, <laughs> and I remember my mum saying that she just bought presents for the entire family. <laughs> living it up (laughs) and my dad with his five pounds thinking this is gonna go nowhere he paid rent um for the week he bought food for the week and he had change left over and he was like what (laughs) this is amazing and so a year later he was able to bring over my mum Uh, My brother, who was, it was 1970, probably about three. My brother was three, my other sister was four, uh, and my other sister was like two or something. Um, Brought them all over, and um, my brother and two sisters ended up in British schools, and my dad was able to buy a house. In the days when um, my dad bought the house for five thousand pounds so immigrants that come over now i mean even um indigenous people in the uk uh today would be absolutely so difficult to buy a house incredibly difficult whereas my dad who was on like 15 pounds a week was able to get a mortgage to uh, get a house that was worth Five thousand um, pounds. That wouldn't happen today, which is a real shame. It's 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 really really difficult. It just gave the entire family stability, and then of course I came along, uh, spoiled the party for my sister who was the youngest for five years till I came along and has hated me ever since. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of migration, um, we were one of the few families in the early 70s in our area, uh, in Manor Park, East London, that were of a different background. And I do remember in infant school, I was, I was the only one. Uh, by primary school, things had changed. And I remember having friends from... India, you know, with backgrounds from India, from uh, the Caribbean, from all sorts. And then um, at secondary school, so we're talking the mid-80s, I remember the Sri Lankans coming in. And it's quite interesting that even when I was teaching children from migrant backgrounds, there's a kind of hierarchy. So my parents looked at the Sri Lankans, my parents being of Malaysian Indian origin, and looking at Sri Lankans and looked down at them, which I thought was a bit mean, really. Um, but they looked down at them as though oh, they come over here. <laughs> they were sounding like they were English, you know, some of the uh, racist English people, and um, were well, very. And I, and I was trying to work out what what the difference was because I mean I was just a kid, I didn't get it, um, and when. As a teacher talking to young people and teaching them citizenship and asking their opinions about migration, again, they were spouting things that they'd heard. Things like, "They come over here," and I was like, "Who is they?" Do you mean your parents? And They're like, "No," and I was like, "But your parents are migrants," and they're like, "Oh," <laughs> you know? and it's it's interesting how they they repeat things from, you know, newspaper headlines, um, from the news, which is, yeah, um, from their own parents, and then having that um, conversation with them. Is that what you really think? Um, what You know, how would you feel if somebody said that to you? Are you talking about my parents? Because my parents were migrants. And they'll be like, no. (laughs) And I was like, but you're talking about migrants, that they come over here and you're spouting that stuff, you're saying that stuff, but my parents were migrants. Oh, I'm not insulting your parents. And I was like, but you are. And when they think of it like that, because it's so easy to talk about migrants and asylum seekers, and they're just numbers on a page. But when you put faces and real lives, you know, actual stories to them young people are like oh hang on a minute <laughs> and i just wonder what the story is in britain right now with you know when those poor people died on um the little dinghy or that died and some of them were children and when you see you know i mean i had to turn twitter off but when you see people on Twitter's saying awful things like good that's 24 less coming in you just think what what happened to humanity um these are people that nobody chooses to go on a dinghy on the english chat on the channel and You know, I mean, even being on a ferry, I was going to be sick over the side because it's a harrowing journey uh, between Britain and France. And then to be on a dinghy with your children, you have to be super desperate to do that. I mean, I can't imagine having to do that, a feeling that you have to do that to give your children a better life and when you see some of the headlines in the papers you just wonder um what some um like the home secretary some of the th- i mean considering that the home secretary her family weren't just immigrants they were um they were actual refugees and um um of course um A definition here between the difference between migrants and asylum seekers. A migrant is someone who changes their country of usual residence. An asylum seeker is someone who does so from fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, social group or political opinion. In this sense, asylum seekers are generally counted as a subset of migrants and are included in official estimates of migrant stocks and flows. Stocks and flows. Even that, I mean, this this definition comes from a government website and even talking about people as stocks and flows is, is, yeah, it it, really. Um, And I was looking at, statistics on uh, UK migration. So um, you look at, and the way that they measure it is by looking at the flows across an international border. And again, they're using the word stock, the stock of people in a particular country who are not nationals of that country, or who were born abroad. Um, So in the year ending March 2020, 715,000 people migrated into the UK and 403,000 people emigrated from it, leaving a net migration figure of 313,000. So in effect, when people say there's millions coming (laughs) (laughs) over here... it's not really. We're talking 300,000 people. I mean, I used to live in Bournemouth, and there was double that, in, as in double the population of people in Bournemouth. So it's not... When you see um, headlines that say, the size of Sheffield um, is migrating over here constantly, and you're like, N- no, that's not what's really happening. Uh, it says here that in the year ending December 2019... Six point two million people were living in the UK who had the nationality of a different country. That's not even the size of um, the population of London. So nine percent of the total population of the country. Okay, um, three point seven million U- EU nationals were living in the UK, and almost a hundred thousand were living in of UK nationals were living in other EU countries. The interesting thing about living in Spain is that um, getting the Spanish perspective, um, even European perspective, because I've been talking to um, people from Germany and France and it's mo- it's quite a melting pot in Valencia. So um, we do have... It's people from all over the world uh, last night I was talking to a Venezuelan um, and uh, his brother was invited into the country was allowed to get a humanitarian visa in Spain because of the problems that are happening in Venezuela so I thought oh that's lovely. that's that's nice um, okay, so you've got what what I find interesting is that when we talk about In the UK, when we talk about immigrants, um, it's like people automatically think of brown people. (laughs) Um, And when you've got um, English people migrating abroad, they're known as expats. But they're all the same thing. They're all migrants. So I'm a migrant now. living in spain and it is quite interesting hearing europeans talk about britain it's not great um part of it is kind of what what is i don't you know they're, they're confused <laughs> they're confused what is going on in britain uh, that's the question i've had quite a bit and um they're like brexit what's that about that's just bonkers. <laughs> that's, that's people that I've been speaking to, their view on um, Britain and Brexit is, why? Why would they do that? And it's quite interesting because the government has been talking about, or oh, certain uh, members of parliament have been saying, we will protect the freedoms of people so they have the freedom not to wear a mask and you're like but you you voted to end freedom to protest you made it a criminal offence and um <laughs> it doesn't make any sense and it's same. and this is what people are talking to me about i don't understand you've end you know britain has basically said we don't want freedom of movement So, okay, you're not going to get as many migrants coming in from Europe. I mean, Europeans feel that I've spoken to, said, well, Britain doesn't want us. They've made it very clear, Britain does not want us. So they're not going to come over. Um, and, And many have left in droves. So there is a kind of confusion as why would Britain do this? maybe there's a bit of understanding of, okay, you don't want people coming in, but why have you decided not to um, allow your people to just freely move and live and work uh, across 27 countries? It's the main reason why I've got our kids Irish passports because their dad's Irish and it's like, why would I just allow them just to have a British passport, which prevents them from having the freedom that the uh, Irish passport would give them? It's, um, yeah, so people over here are very confused about why, why all this has happened. And I'm pretty sure that in years to come, there's going to be um, studies... <laughs> On why britain would do this to itself um obviously i'm a remainer and um yeah and that that is my personal point of view but also the people that i've spoken to um having now lived in spain for a month
2: are you looking to take your phonics practice forward then little wandle letters and sounds revised is the program for you Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn
3: Following last week's warning from Ofsted's Chief Inspector that a number of children are missing from school England's Children's Commissioner Rachel D'Souza has announced that an investigation to locate the ghost children is to be lodged. Some estimates have suggested that as many as 100,000 children are at risk of abuse after failing to return to school after lockdown. Rachel D'Souza said, we're hearing lots about ghost children and I hate that term. These are real flesh and blood children. We should be able to find out where every child in England is. We should be making sure they are in school receiving high quality education." The Education Secretary, Nadeem Zahawi, said his department had now set up a new attendance alliance designed to bring together the key figures able to tackle the problem of missing school children. Following Nicola Sturgeon's announcement on Friday that the Scottish Government would do all that it can to keep classrooms open, the Deputy First Minister John Swinney has stated that schools in Scotland will be the last thing we close. These announcements come in response to a rapid increase in cases of the new strain of Covid and a call from teaching union boss Larry Flanagan to close schools early for Christmas. He said the Scottish Government should consider an early Christmas closure if a fire break is needed to fend off a new wave. Nicola Sturgeon said last week that she would bust a gut to keep schools open as normal. Butterflies Nursery in Craigie, Dundee usually organises food bank donations around Christmas, but this year they have raised the bar and have launched a winter jacket drive. Manager Caroline McDermott said, it just came from us thinking, what else can we do to help? A lot of people have lost their jobs with the pandemic recently. And the last thing a lot of people think of when they're doing their budget is a warm winter coat. We printed off some laminated signs and made some flyers. So far it's been quite successful. Everyone deserves a winter coat. So far more than 50 coats have been donated by pupils, parents and staff. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
0: This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This week
4: we're going to look at one of the simplest, freely available, yet least used browser technologies, the Reader View. Chrome versus Edge, let the battle commence. On screen one, I have Microsoft Edge weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. On screen two, I have Google Chrome also weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. Round one, opening Reader View. On the Edge browser, the Immersive Reader feature is built in and can be activated by a button on the address bar by typing read followed by a colon in front of a URL and also you can simply press F9. Before you can open Reader View in Chrome, you have to install it as an extension. It's free and not difficult. Once installed, you'll find it in extensions located to the right of the address bar. One point to Immersive Reader, round two, features. Both come out fighting with the read aloud feature that allows the user to adjust the read speed, skip forward and back and change the voice that is reading. They both also highlight the word being read. Chrome Reader has a volume control which is a nice touch if not using headphones. One point, Chrome Reader, round three, readability. A big feature for reader views is the ability to change the formatting to suit the user. Both allow easy changing of font size, font, and text width on the screen. But they differ in background colour features. Here is where Immersive Reader offers quite a bit more. Chrome Reader offers eight background slash contrast colours, four light and four dark, Immersive Reader provides 23 background options, green, pink, yellow and blue included, allowing pupils with visual needs to find a comfortable colour. One point, Immersive Reader. Round four, editing. Chrome Reader features a design mode. This allows you to... Quite useful if wanting to pick out key points to return to. Immersive Reader does not have this feature. One Point Chrome Reader. Round 5. Extra Features. Immersive Reader has a grammar feature allowing words to be split into syllables. You can highlight nouns, verbs, adjectives and adverbs by flicking switches. This feature is not offered on Chrome Reader. One Point Immersive Reader. Immersive Reader also offers reading preferences. Featuring line focus of five, three or one line blocking out the rest of the page. There's a picture dictionary, allowing some words to change the pointer to a magic wand that reveals a picture depicting it. Also, there's a translation feature, allowing partial or full translation of a page into 88 different languages at the click of a button. Chrome Reader does not offer these features, however, other free products, such as Google Translate, could be used. Immersive Reader takes the point, because you don't need to leave the page. Final score! Winning with 4 points to 2 after a blistering final round is Microsoft Immersive Reader, but let's face it, most people don't know these things exist. If you were one of them, please do something about it. See if these features are installed in your school, and if not, request they are. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed.
0: Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Okay, we've been talking about migration, immigration, asylum seekers, all different things, but how they've been used um, as though they're all the same word. And uh, we've also been talking to Elham Farhad, who I have to say is a complete inspiration, having come over as um, a refugee uh, uh, from Iran, um, having a campaign to be um, treated as a home student so that she could get a grant to go to university, having an, a very successful career as um, in finance. I won't pretend to understand what it was. <laughs> um, but then she set up a charity, uh, Migrant Leaders, to help first, second generation migrants to um, be successful. And basically Britain, uh, employers, the migrants and their families, they all benefit from it. And um, she's basically changing lives, uh, a lot of lives through this, and it's fantastic. And also helping um, Indigenous UK, uh young people um from disadvantaged backgrounds as well and what um what's interesting is is that if if you think about the usual rhetoric around migrants coming over. Uh, It's where they come over here, they take our jobs. You know, that kind of what else do they do? Uh, They come over here, they take our jobs. Um I'm not gonna finish that sentence that I'm thinking of right now. But um and um what's interesting is that every migrant that I've known in the UK yes they've got jobs because they've applied for them uh and like my dad as soon as he came over he got some kind of factory job my mum who had never worked in her life she'd never even been to school got married at 16 uh came over to the uk when she was 24 with three children not a word of english she ended up getting a to make ends meet she needed to go to work and um luckily for us she got a part-time job in a sweet factory <laughs> around the corner from where we lived, um, which was great because she'd always come home with some goodies. Um, but that that was very hard on her because it's not easy. You think, oh yeah, sprinkle some hundreds of thousands on sweets, but actually she worked in the jelly section, which was very cold. Um She worked incredibly hard and then she'd come home and she'd be aching. There'd be aches and pains. And that's what I remember about being a kid with my parents who worked so, so hard. Um, Their aches and pains. And if I think back now, I mean, I saw them as old, but my mum was like in her 30s and my dad was in his 40s and they were like old people. Because they work so hard in factories um, to put food on the table. So when people used to say <laughs> insulting stuff to me um, and to just just to the kids that I was teaching and that, I used to take it very personally and very it used to really upset me. Come over here, sit on our benefits. And like my parents, apart from sick benefit, when they were really, really sick, um, they n- were never on benefits, n- never on benefits. And I remember my brother, when he, my brother was at, did a HND at South Bank Poly. And um, when he finished, he, he was looking for work. And whilst he was looking for work, he went on the dole. My parents wouldn't speak to him. <laughs> he was an embarrassment because he'd He'd gone on the dole. We don't take off the state. (laughs) So they refused to speak to him until he got a job. Um, So you think about migrant families, they just, they want to do what's best for their kids. Um, The majority want to contribute to the state. And so a lot of the stuff that's coming out in the press is quite insulting. It's quite, it basically says... We don't want you here. Um, but Britain needs them, you know. And I always the other day, who was I talking to? I'm trying to think who I was talking to, but their parents were given passports as well. I'm trying to think who I was talking to. <laughs> but, um, oh, no, yes, that's it. I was talking to... Uh, friend from choir's husband and he was born in Turkey but brought up in Germany and his dad how he calls it is headhunted because Germany needed workers and so they went to Turkey and now Germany has huge amount a huge uh, Turkish expat community though we don't hear them called as that we hear them called as migrants coming over here, taking their jobs. You know, the usual thing. So he was saying that his dad was invited to come to Germany. And it's interesting because my dad was invited, uh, along with his brother, to come to Britain. But when they arrived, the rhetoric was oh, you come over here, you know, kind of thing. he's like, oh, you guys asked me to come. (laughs) You know, you need us, you need workers. And that's never been more obvious as in uh, the last few months when uh, there were actual food shortages in the UK. Uh, I don't know what it's like right now. Maybe somebody can type in and say actual food shortages because there weren't any drivers, there weren't enough drivers because a lot of the drivers who are European went home because um, they didn't feel wanted. Well, you know, and we've been talking to uh, Tim, my husband, um, has been talking to taxi drivers. He loves talking to taxi drivers. And uh, the taxi drivers are very happy. (laughs) A lot of them are... We've been talking to taxi drivers from Pakistan, from Venezuela, from Argentina, from France, from Morocco, from... uh, And a lot of them are Valencian, and they love... And every single one that we've spoken to love living in Valencia. And they just... (laughs) When they talk about the British, it's not insulting. It's more confusion. It's kind of, what? What is Britain doing? Brexit, Brexit. Um, what's that about? They just don't understand it. And then we were talking about the food shortages, and they're like, yeah, but why would any European go to Britain? They don't want us. And I just thought, well, that's just horrid. <laughs> it's not very nice at all to feel that that there's a country right next door to you that doesn't want you. Okay, I've got to talk about this. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, If I can find it, where is it? Let me see. Right. So this went viral. Um, An apology to American teachers over Dash for cash. This was a charity stunt. And now a friend of mine who's American years ago, I remember him saying to me, oh, I've had to buy paper I've a, I buy all the supplies for my classroom um, out of my own money. And I was like, what? That's crazy. It um, doesn't seem so crazy anymore <laughs> in the UK, but at the time, 20-odd 20, 20 years ago, it was like, that. that's just bonkers. So um, what is this about? This is a charity event in South Dakota, and there was this Dash for Cash on Saturday, At a hockey game Scooped as many Possible one dollar bills Into their clothing In under five minutes Now in South Dakota They're among The lowest Size Um, And On Monday When's that Am I on Monday? No, this is Tuesday Um, I'm still in Monday mode On the radio Uh, On Tuesday, Monday (laughs) um, uh, The local Hockey team and bank That donated the cash Apologised, I mean it was just Horrible to see um, All these teachers on their knees Desperately trying to get this cash Not for themselves For their kids, that they're teaching For their classrooms Um, A statement by the Sioux Falls Stampede and the CU Mortgage Direct Bank said, although our intent was to provide a positive and fun experience for teachers, we can see how it appears to be degrading and insulting towards the participating teachers and the teaching profession as a whole. We deeply regret and apologise to all teachers for any embarrassment this may have caused. They added that they received applications from 31 teachers and randomly drew 10 to appear on the ice to appear on the ice for the promotion. I was wondering what it meant ice then, but yeah, it was ice hockey, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it just it was horrible to see, but you can see why they did it, why the teachers did it. Uh, You can't blame the teachers for it because they just like, oh, my God, I can get, if I put stuff, this money into my pocket, I can buy this for the classroom. The kids will get this, that, and the other. You you know, but the fact that we're in that state of affairs in certain countries is pretty uh, shocking. And you've got critics comparing the event to the hit Korean Netflix show, Squid Games. In which competitors fight to the death for a cash prize, is it? okay? Yes, yeah, see, I, I haven't quite, I haven't quite got into the Squid Game thing. I don't. Um, is it real? <laughs> I don't, it can't be real. Ah, Tom Rogers, Mr. Rogers is in the studio. Morning, um, tell us your thoughts on Squid Games. I don't understand it. What's it about? um my kids were playing something to do or watching something to do with squid games and i was like oh because some some alarm bell went off in my head thinking there's something wrong with squid i'm sure it's for older kids um and they were like yeah but nothing happens and so i was watching it with them just to double check and it didn't seem like it just seemed a bit like that game we used to play where um there's somebody in front and you have to try and move forward without them spotting you moving. I used to play it with PSAG kids. Um, yeah. So anyway, what a demeaning and degrading thing for teachers to do. Um, not their fault, obviously, but I'm glad that the uh, bank and the organisers apologised. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is... We've been talking about migrants and um, is thinking about things from a different perspective. So in Canada, for example, um, they have offered up to $40 billion to compensate Indigenous children. Now, I've been kind of, um, over the years, read bits and pieces on this. And it's where... um, I mean, the real migrants are the people that went over to Canada. They didn't discover it. There were people in Canada already. And at one point what was happening was that um, the children who were... who are the true Canadians, if you like, um, to try and assimilate them, they forced them to abandon their native languages and convert to Christianity. Um, and it's the usual, I mean, I see it as the usual story, really. So when somebody asks me, what's your Christian name, which I got a lot in Bournemouth for some reason, I...
2: Um, uh, So the government, the Canadian government, um,
1: there was all kinds of tribunals, there were lawsuits, um, and what the um, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations said is that the money does not mean justice. Now, it's massive. The The conversation is massive, but then you think about what the uh, Metis and Inuit children went through. They were housed, they were ripped away from their families. Um, their language was taken away from them. They had to speak um, what do they speak in Canada? In- uh, um, it's Traumatized generations of Indigenous children, um, and Christian churches were essential in fa- in the founding and operation of these schools. And what? Um, and they say that the Catholic Church, in particular, was responsible for operating around. that in these residential schools, um, there was a lot of, there was abuse, both, um, emotional, uh, physical, you know, the trauma that these young children who are now adults faced, um, will stay with them for the rest of their lives. Um, And just being ripped away from your family would be appalling and just absolutely shocking. Um, Okay, and there's also um, a few years back I read about child graves being found um, and, you know, that they're talking about, you know, there's all kinds of hideous, tragic um, examples of, indigenous children being treated horrifically, uh inhumanely. So it's good that they're getting some kind of uh truth actually that instead of push brushing it under the carpet, Canada is facing it and saying, actually, you know, we hold our hands up, we are we apologize for this and we're gonna compensate you for this. So um that is good news, although I don't think anything can ever take away from the trauma. Right. um But I've made it through rambling Through uh, splitting headache Through um, my throat killing me Um, Yeah, I've made it I've almost made it And and I'm sure Tom Rogers won't mind If I pop off early Because my throat is absolutely killing me now Um, But I just want to say thank you If you didn't hear, you can listen back um, on www.ttradio.org uh, Listen back to the interview um, coming from uh, a migrant background herself and is now helping first and second generation migrants in the UK to contribute to society and basically change their lives, um, so yeah, total inspiration. And if your school wants to get involved, main six form, uh, six forms, they can apply. The entire program is free, and they can get mentors in um, some incredible organisations where they can probably get apprenticeships and and um, yeah. Yeah, their lives can be changed. It's it's fantastic that something like this is out there. So this, yeah, okay, this is me, Malavilli Krishna Sami, live for the week, not just the weekend, signing off with tonsillitis. <laughs> Uh, I'll see you next week when I have got, what's the date next week The four, Oh no, today's the 14th. So next week is the 21st, a few days from Christmas and I've got Jill Berry. I've been saying this every week cause I've been getting the dates wrong cause I'm just incredibly confused. Um, but Jill Berry is definitely coming in next week to talk about leadership, um, yeah and today is tuesday and we've got a range of shows on today can somebody in the chat tell me um yeah hang on it's tuesday so who's on on tuesdays do we have have we got libby on on tuesday i'm desperately trying to find my my calendar of people that are on on tuesdays um I have to say, I listened to Tom Starkey. So I only listened to fifteen minutes on Sunday, and I was just laughing my head off. It was absolutely hilarious. So, if you haven't listened to that, do listen back. Oh, I'm on the wrong thing. That helps if I'm on the right thing here. But I'm still rambling. It's all right. Um, ramble, ramble, and I can't find it anyway. There's loads of people on today, and uh, we've got some new starters coming on as well. And yeah.